Hello and welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this week's episode we'll be hearing from the wonderful Zoe Devlin about April wildflowers, learning how to identify members of the lily family and discovering urban wildflowers. Wildflower Hour takes place on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm. If you're in Britain or Ireland and you find a wildflower, post it using the hashtag Wildflower Hour or in our Facebook group and help make the internet friendlier and more beautiful. One of the things that we do during the warmer-ish months is run weekly challenges so that on top of your normal wildflower hunting, you can look for certain types of plant. It's a great way of stretching your botanical knowledge and this week's challenge to find members of the lily family is a bit of a stretch too. So thank goodness for Kevin Widowson, one of my co-leaders on Wildflower Hour, who is here to explain this rather complicated group. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Wildflower Half Hour Family Features Guide. In this episode we're going to be looking at the former Liliaceae family, um, and I say former because recently it has been reclassified into a number of different families, and we'll be explaining that in detail. But originally it was a family that contained wildflowers with three petals and three sepals. These formed tepals because they looked alike in shape and form. Also the leaves have parallel veins. But over the years more and more species got added to this group, this family, and it became so varied that eventually it was decided that they needed to be separated out. And with recent molecular molecular Um, study, um, it has indeed worked out that these can be split into those separate families. Um, So let's have a little bit of a look at those. There are nine new families within the former Liliaceae family, and the ones that we will be looking at in more detail include the now Lily family, the Liliaceae family. We'll be looking at the Amaryllidaceae family, which are the daffodils um, or the um, onions, the alliums. And we'll also be looking at the Asparagaceae family. Um, This sounds a bit unusual, but it actually contains some of um, our more well-known species. But before we move on to that, I'll just mention that there are some of those other families that it's been split out into, include the Melianthiaceae family, which which contains Herb Paris. In fact, in the UK, that's the only species within that family. And we also have things like Narthisaceae family, which are the bog asphodels. Other families include the saffron family, um, the Scottish asphodel family and the Peruvian lily family. But those are a little bit more detailed and you don't come across them very often. So what we'll do is we'll just take you through those three key families um, and look at some of the features within them. So we'll start off with the now with the new Liliaceae family. And this has five genera within it. The ones that we'll all know about are the tulips, the fritillaries and the lilies. Common features are that they have bulbs um, in the ground. The flowers are actinomorphic, so they are regular with multiple lines of symmetry. And this symmetry is usually rotational. They have six free tepals. And remember, that's, the, that's where the petals and the sepals are of similar shape and colour. Um, and... These petals are brightly coloured. Mostly the outer wall is not different from the inner wall of petals. Um, There are six stamen and the ovary itself is three-celled. The fruit tends to be a capsule and the ovary is superior. So moving on to the Amaryllidaceae family, there are actually 12 genera within this family. 
And this is this has had the grouping of the snowdrops, the daffodils, and the alliums, which are the garlics and onions. The um, Amaryllidaceae family, splitting those out into those, we'll just take a look at those three key genera. So we'll look at the alliums. Now, these also have bulbs, but the flowers are actually in umbels. So this is just simple umbels. And this is where the flowers are the, at the tip of rays that emerge from a terminal point, from a single point on the stem. So imagine um, an umbrella going out. This is slightly different to the Apaceae, the carrot family, which has compound umbels. So these have a second set of umbels at the top of those rays. So they're difficult to, um, to confuse. The flowers here are actinomorphic and the ovary is superior. Now that is important to note because it's actually different to some of the other genera within this family. So then we have the snowdrops. These also have a bulb. The flowers, though, are solitary and they're pendant, so they, you can imagine that they nod, nod down. Um, the flowers are actinomorphic, but unusually for the lilies, the sepals and the, te and the petals are actually different in shape. The colour tends to be the same. So here we've got the inner three forming a, a bell-shaped wall and we have the outer three being spreading um, and they can be erect when they're in full flower. And as I mentioned, more commonly to this, this family, the ovary is inferior. And this is the same of the final group we'll look at in this family, the daffodils. A really complex group, there are thousands of cultivars out there, which is why commonly they get split into 12 divisions. So you can kind of group all of those into, into 12 separate groups. In the new flora of the British Isles by Clive Stace, there are actually only 26 species recognised. And obviously within those you get all the hybrids and you get all the cultivars within that. Um, but what um, he does mention is that there's these 12 divisions, so you can it's relatively easy to get down to that level. So the, the daffodils, um, they also have a bulb. Um, the flowers are actinomorphic again, so they've got that rotational symmetry, multiple lines of symmetry. And what we will all know about this is that it has a corona, the trumpet, and these are, this is fused to form a tube. So that's one of the classic features of a, of a daffodil. So then we'll take a look at our final family that we're going to review. Um, and that's the Asparagaceae family. And this is a very varied group, but we'll just take a look at a, at a few of those. The Asparagaceae family includes things like Lily of the Valley, Bluebells, Hyacinths, Grape Hyacinth, but some of the oddities that we'll look at later are things like Butcher's Broom and Asparagus. So some of the genera within the Asparagaceae family are things like the Bluebells, and that's the classic one. Um, Bluebells have leaves that are all basal. The flowers, really importantly, have two bracts underneath them, and these flowers are in a terminal raceme. Now, I say it's important to notice those two bracts because this is one of the ways you can separate bluebells from hyacinths, hyacinths having only one bract underneath the flower. Now, a bract is a, is a leaf-like structure that, sit, that emerges from the stem, not from a node, and the bracts on... The hyacinths and the bluebells are actually quite small and they are lanceolate, so they're maybe five millimetres long. But counting the number of them will tell you which one you've got. 
other ways of separating the bluebells out from the hyacinths are that in hyacinths the tepals are fused and in bluebells the tepals are separate, they're free. In both cases the ovary is superior and the fruits are a capsule. So looking a little bit more at bluebells, we have the obvious problem with the hybridisation from the Spanish bluebell. Now the Spanish bluebell is rarely seen in the wild um, despite being a garden plant. And what we are actually worried about is the hybrid, um, Hyacinthoids ex Masatiana. Um, our English bluebell, or Hyacinthoids non scripta, um, is a schedulate plant, which means it's um, got a high level of protection on it, um, which is why we're concerned about the hybridization and the loss of the um, genetic integrity of the plant that we have. So, how to separate those out? In the English bluebells, the easiest way to separate them out is the width of the leaves. If they're 15 millimetres or under, then you're likely to have Hyacinthoids non scripta, English bluebell. But if they are above 15 millimetres, then you have the hybrid or Hispanica, Spanish bluebell. Another way to look at it is actually to look at the shape of the inflorescence. So in non scripta, the inflorescence is one-sided and nodding. So you can imagine that kind of um, walking stick terminal point to the to the plant the hybrid and the spanish tend to be more more erect and the flowers actually go around the stem in a spiral um, so it looks quite different um, when you compare the two next to each other another way is to look at the anthers in hispanica in spanish bluebell they have blue anthers and this is also the case in the hybrid but that can vary a little bit so it's not definitive that the hybrid has blue anthers. The um, anthers in um, non scripta are cream coloured but as I say not a perfect um, way of separating the plants out because the hybrid can vary. So to kind of wrap up we'll, we'll look at those oddities within the asparagaceae family and that's the butcher's broom and the asparagus. And I say they're oddities because actually what appear to be leaves on these plants are actually something called cladodes. And these cladodes are flattened nodes at the nodes or stems, and these take on the function of the of the leaves, so they're responsible for the photosynthesis for the plant. And in, in the case of Butcher's broom, the, the flower actually sits in what appears to be the leaf, so it sits as though it's right in the middle of the leaf, but actually this is sitting on the stem. Asparagus itself, um, it does have true leaves which are underneath these cladodes, but that fern-like feel to it is actually not true leaves. So that is a basic roundup of the former Liliaceae family and a brief explanation of how that has now been split into those nine families. Um, you could go into great length on this and there are variability in all of those groups, so you have to take this with caution. But hopefully um, I've provided you with enough information to be able to get to family level with those groups. Thanks, Kevin. And you just need to upload your photos to our Facebook group or to Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag LilyChallenge. Now, if you haven't taken part in Wildflower Hour yet, you might be thinking that you need to go somewhere rural, maybe even a nature reserve to find wildflowers. Not so, says Dr Mark Spencer, who is an expert in urban botany. I chatted to him about the wild plants you can find in even the greyest parts of a city. When I first started living in London, best part of 30 years ago, I 
paid scant regard for any of the wild plants of London. But um, as I've lived here longer and as I've become more involved in British botany and natural history, I really realise actually cities are incredibly rich and diverse and actually really important because it's in the cities that we're actually starting to see really significant changes in our wildflower communities. So the streets of London and other British cities are teeming with fascinating wild plants. One of the things that's often said by people who are from other parts of the British Isles is that actually, um, really, we have a lot of really weird stuff that other people don't have very much of at all. Um, we have lots and lots of plants which... Um, you know, you hardly find any. For example, actually, passion flower is now becoming a fairly frequent escape in parts of London. We have foxglove trees turning up on street corners, seedlings. But the really common stuff are things like, you know, gallant soldier, shaggy soldier, and the coniser species. So it's fair to say that London's botany is really different from other parts of the UK. We're also actually starting to see the re-emergence of one of our most famous and formerly virtually extinct Londoners, which is London rocket, which is an amazing plant. And they're actually in the same overall lineages of the dahlia. And they're a daisy family, um, set from primarily from South America, originally Gallinsoga. Um, and they are um, like tiny, tiny little dahlias, actually. The flowers, I often think of them, so they're the flower heads are actually, ooh, you know, about half a centimetre across. They're tiddly little things, but actually incredibly unattractive when you get round to looking at them. And the name Gallinsoga, their original scientific name, was actually corrupted through actually saying it quickly, pretty much into gallant soldier. So you have Gallinsoga, gallant soldier. London Rocket is one with a, an incredible and extraordinary history. And actually John Swindles in the east of London is actually the real expert on this plant. But it's a, a fascinating thing. So uh, London Rocket gets its name basically from rocketing around London. But rocketing around in London in 1666, it was first actually um, recorded in Britain um, sometime before that in, I think it was the 1580s by a chap called Goodyear. And it was noticed as an occasional weed on the streets of London. But 1666 is when it really came to everybody's attention because after the Great Fire, it appeared in enormous abundance in the burn sites of London. Um, and the London was covered in sheets of yellow, apparently. It's even mentioned in the diaries of Pepys, from what I've been told. It then gradually peters out as, you know, London rebuilds itself and it loses the space it could have once held. Um, and by the middle of the Victorian era, it was virtually extinct and extremely rare in the London area. Well, it was actually hanging on in Berwick-upon-Tweed, of all places. And then, so really, by the middle of the 20th century, it's hardly ever recorded in this city. But then about 15 years ago, myself and other people started noticing that it was actually reappearing. But it was reappearing in quite interesting places. Some of the places it was first reappearing were right in the areas where it was first discovered. So by the Roman walls, down by the um, tower, for example, it still occurs. And also in parts of the East End on the old canal system. So it's, it's probably been hanging around a very, very low ebb. Um, in these areas, but it's also actually now starting to turn up in new areas. So as I look out of my window in Islington from the 18th floor over the streets of central London, um, parts of Islington, we're starting to see new populations of it turn up. And we think these ones are actually much, much more recent 
partly because it's in somewhat different parts of town, but actually the flower colour of our Islingtonian London rocket are actually slightly different. They seem to be a different founder population. What, what's, what, what's the difference? From what we've seen so far, purely observationally, the um, colour of the older populations, if they are indeed that, from around the town, parts of the East End is more of a sort of clear, sort of chromey yellow. Our Islingtonian plants are largely a sort of rather pale, pasty yellow colour. So flower colour seems to be consistently different. And I suspect that the Islington plants are probably more reflecting more recent introductions through horticulture. We're seeing a huge amount of non-native plants coming into London over the last 20 years, particularly with this enthusiasm for trendy tropical plants, imported olives, etc., etc. Is that something to worry about? When I talk to charities like Plant Life, they're very worried about wildflower mixes being used in more rural areas and sort of disrupting the ecosystem there is is that just something you don't need to care about in london well i'm i won't i'm trevor did assume trevor um oh i've forgotten his name also there's that ridiculous trevor died sorry uh, sorry trevor um all of them um, did a superb job with regard to wildflower seed mixes so i won't go on to that territory but Actually, these plants that are turning up in London area, which are non-natives, are inherently probably not themselves significant problems. Many of them are small wintergreen annuals from the Mediterranean basin, things like various fumaria species, Nathalium and Urtica membranacea. However, they do exemplify something which is incredibly worrying. We have incredibly poor quarantine in this country. We're allowing mass import of many, many plants from all over the world. Some of those plants may be invasive problems in the future, but we are bringing in millions of tons of soil into this country, probably over the years, full of all sorts of non-native biodiversity, much of which won't do anything. But actually, a lot of it is potentially incredibly harmful. And obviously, the ash dieback fiasco is a good example of these kind of concerns. So these curious Mediterranean eels that we're finding in central London are biologically fascinating. They're telling us quite a lot about how our city is changing. And they are possibly giving indicators that we are not doing the best thing, but they're inherently themselves, I suspect, not a problem. So if someone wants to go for a wildflower walk in London rather than driving out of the city to Surrey or one of the other home counties, what would you recommend they look for? Give us some of the other interesting and unusual plants that they might see and where they where they should go walking. Well, I think one of the first things you have to do is grow a fixed it's fair to say most Londoners are sort of a, are most concerned and often weirded out by the sights of botanists on their hands and knees in gutters on Tottenham Court Road or wherever it may be. Um, and actually, and actually, I've had one of my recorders get very firmly told off for being crawling around on their hands and knees on a piece of grass outside Buckingham Palace. So um, you do obviously be aware of some of the more peculiarities of urban botanising. But, you know, London, we have got lots and lots of really interesting non-native plants moving in. Urtica membranacea, this membranous nettle from the, um, from the Mediterranean region, is a real classic. It seems to really have taken London home. It was first recorded, actually, I think, in Warwick in about 2004, we've got about 15, 20 sites, at least in the London area, and it pops up all over the place. But it does seem to be kind of quite scattered. It's quite hard to predict where it turns up. 
And we've got it in Islington, but it's also in the Portobello Road area. There's quite a few sites in central and south London. But one of the more interesting, I think, and really exciting plants, which are quite controversial, is um, Jersey Cudweed, Nathalium luteo album. Now, this plant, 30, 40 years ago, was extremely rare in Britain, was restricted to one or two sites, and so much so that it's ended up on Schedule 8 of the Wildlife and Countryside Act. So it's legally protected. It's up there with a lady's slipper orchid. However, this plant is not a native to the British Isles, and one would question maybe why it needed to be there in the first place. But rather bizarrely, it's become quite a common weed in parts of London at the moment. We're finding it increasingly in the Docklands areas, where it's actually starting to give developers a bit of a headache because actually we're finding Nephalium luteo album all over the place, sometimes by the tens of thousands on some of these sites in the East End. And they're having to go through quite rigorous procedures in terms of their development requirements because you've got a Schedule A plant on their grounds. So there are all sorts of weird and wonderful places you can find plants in a city like London. But they're oh so unpredictable because you can they can be there for one week, one year, one day. Councils come along, weed killer, all sorts of things like that, and you've lost them. So it really is a bit of a lottery out there. Well, I um, I found a Jersey cudweed in Wandsworth when I was cycling on my way to work. And I was so excited by it that uh, I pulled over at the traffic lights and uh, was kneeling by the curb having a good look at it. And uh, obviously a number of drivers ran down their window and asked if I'd been knocked off my bike. But actually, <laughs> no, I'd, I'd just been knocked off my feet by the sight of this wildflower that I'd never seen before in southwest London. So... Um, <laughs> Should You mentioned councils killing plants, which most people in towns, I have to say, will see these wildflowers and say, that's a weed, that looks messy, my curb is full of Canadian fleabane or whatever, you need to get rid of it. Do you think that councils could have a more a greener attitude towards some of these plants or or do you have sympathy with them for for coming along and and getting rid of of all these wildflowers It's it's a complex problem you know one of the main reasons that councils use weed killers like glyphosate is so they are easy to use and to apply for them particularly at the moment they're cost effective um because they only really have to do something once or twice a year Certainly some councils in the country are um, stopping use these um, chemicals because of environmental concerns and because of pressure from their local communities. It's a really complex and tricky problem. Um, certainly, you know, you can't have plants growing nonstop on a street because, you know, the first year it's cute little sort of weedy grasses and things like that. Within two or three years, you've got small budliers, and before you know it, you've got a scrubland developing because plants can come out of the tiniest of cracks. See, we clearly can't stop managing our pavements for the plants that grow on there because otherwise we won't be able to walk down the paths. So it's a bit of a tricky problem, but certainly one of the things that is really interesting, I suspect, is that glyphosate, etc., is possibly having some really interesting impacts on our plants in London. Now, there are two quite interesting native plants that have been with us for a very long time, which 20 years ago in London, one of them in particular, we thought was heading towards extinction. So, um, rue leaf saxifrage, saxifraga tridactylites, we were down to about four or five sites in London. Uh, and, and some of those sites literally with three or four plants. And we really thought we were going to lose it. 
Now, bizarrely and amazingly, over the last 10 years in particular, it has started reappearing in new locations and new types of habitat that we'd never seen it before. It used to be on old churchyard walls and places like that. It is now turning up on railway sidings, brownfield sites, etc., etc., and it is turning up by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions. My personal suspicion, and I've not proven this yet, is that this plant, along with actually Eryphalaverna, Whitlow grass, is possibly developing resistance to things like glyphosate, and it's able to outcompete other plants by getting into this little tiny niche of growing through the winter, flower and fruit, and get on with its own life in London. So we're starting to find these two plants, which we both we thought were really rare at one point, reappearing all over central London, which is brilliant. That was Dr Mark Spencer on Urban Wildflowers. And finally, it's April. This is a month where things start to move fast in the wildflower world and the winter waiting is finally over. Zoe Devlin is here to read a little bit more from her wonderful book, Blooming Marvellous. We held each other's gaze for what seemed like ten minutes, but I think on reflection it must have been very much less. It was, however, long enough for me to take in every detail of this image and store it for subsequent relish. I was in Inish Teague in County Kilkenny, a place worth visiting in any season. It was some years ago when I first explored this part of the world to see what it had to offer botanically. I came across a large, extremely wet area of ground, tucked under a line of beech trees that separated a lush green meadow from the nearby road. As I ducked under the low branches to see what might lie at the back of this swampy ground, a lovely sight met my eyes. There stood a large group of summer snowflake, tall, elegant plants, with green-spotted, white, bell-shaped flowers, a bit like snowdrops in high heels. I have read that the seeds of this plant are often spread by floating down rivers. Perhaps that's how they found themselves carried into the wetter regions of this meadow. The river Nore, which wends its way alongside it, often overflows in winter, leaving wet patches in its wake. Summer snowflake is one of those plants that look better when photographed from low down, and the only way to do the job properly was to lie flat on the ground. It was very damp in the meadow, especially where the plants had chosen to grow. I was wearing wellies and had a large black bin bag with me, so I spread it out and prostrated myself. My elbows were braced, my two hands holding the camera steady. Just as I was about to press the shutter release, I became aware of some movement at the edge of my vision. I took the camera away from my eyes and turned my head slowly. It was a fox. He stood still as a statue, absolutely motionless, and our eyes met plan to try to photograph him came in and out of my mind with the speed of light. No, I would not even attempt to capture this beauty's image. I would just look and look and look. The tableau of the russet coloured creature, his pointed muzzle with its outstanding black whiskers, his erect ears, white belly and long bushy tail are etched across my memory as if it were yesterday. It seemed to me that somehow we were communicating with each other. He, I won't hurt you, and me, I won't hurt you either. 
The fox appeared to study me as closely as I studied him, and then, with a certain detached elegance, he turned and walked away, unhurriedly, not fearing anything from me, as if a pact had been made. I watched as he strolled leisurely across the meadow, and gradually he disappeared from sight, and I lay there, feeling as if it was my birthday. Thanks, Zoe. And that's all for this episode. Don't forget to take part in Wildflower Hour between 8 and 9pm every Sunday. And do join us again next week on this podcast.